Bird's Eye View is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. BaltimoreSportsReport.com. Back to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for a lack of insight and baseless opinion. Today is September 1st, 2014. This is episode 93. I am Scott Bagnus, and I'm here with my big boy, my color commentator, Jake English. You can find us at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. You should also find us on the Baltimore Sports Report Network. You can also find us on iTunes, Miro, Stitcher, Double Twist, social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash bvcast. On Google+, and uh, you should really be following us on Twitter at BirdseyeViewBAL, the best use of your 140 characters, in my honest opinion. Um, you can also find us on Tuesdays and Thursday nights on Post Game Live on Channel BSR. You go to BaltimoreSportsReport.com slash live at the end of the game, and uh, we'll be on there with our lovely faces. I was actually on there twice in one week, which is pretty much a miracle. Ow, ow. Yeah. Uh, everyone, I'm sure, loves seeing the reflection of my computer screen in my glasses. I do like, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because last time I was on there, I did it sans glasses, which uh, got rid of the glare, but it ended up in a lot of squinting. Yeah, it was Mr. Magooish, so congratulations. <laughs> um, for those that are on birdseyeviewbaltimore.com, please go there, click on the Amazon banner when you need to purchase something on Amazon, and uh, we would love to get 2 to 3% of some commission that Amazon gives us. You know, it's dollars in a given month, but again, those dollars really do help this podcast out in terms of just paying for internet hosting and um you know websites and you know it just it's greatly appreciated so um we are beggars on the corner just give us your your change in your cigarette tray because um that's what we need to keep this podcast afloat wow that's nice thanks yeah. thanks for calling us hobos uh now that you've you've gone to that level can you at least describe what is in your brown paper bag what is the drink of the week for you this week jake my drink of the week um is a brewer's art birdhouse pale ale I've heard of it. Yes, it comes in an orange can, so it's a nice beer. I am drink. I am also drinking a pale ale. Mine is a Powder Monkey from Loose Cannon. Okay, or so for, for heavy seas, rather. So we're drinking uh, two Baltimore breweries, and uh, for those that would like to follow us on Untapped, you can follow us at Jake E four zero two five and myself M E G N eight six zero six and. Uh, we post what two or three times a week. We're social. We, we're social drinkers. We we post a little more often than I'm comfortable with admitting. How's that? Yeah. Okay. Jake, uh, with that, let's go to the medical wing. JJ Hardy was pulled out of today's game um, with some back spasms. Um, he had back spasms earlier this year, but the reports are there. He said they, it wasn't as bad as it was the, earlier this year, where it locked completely up. Uh, you, first of all, do you believe anything that comes out of the Orioles regarding injuries? Because they've got to have a little uh, double talk. Absolutely not. But the fact that you've got Jimmy Paredes and Ryan Flaherty both on the left side is of concern to me. Well, it wasn't a concern until today's game where uh, Jimmy P let everything go through him. Well, I, I think it's going to be a concern regardless. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether Kelly Johnson gets a shot at third base tomorrow. You know, it was interesting, and, and we're going to have the twat in a, in a minute. I, I feel really bad. I, it may be uh mark brown of, of camden chat at eat more sk who tweeted out mm -hmm. something like parades makes me really miss uh chris davis at third base ouch yeah ouch yeah the worst part is is that he's not wrong yeah um other individuals on the medical wing um and the reason why chris davis is on first base is because steve pierce is day-to-day -day with an abdominal strain now is this an oblique um I don't know. Are you going to sing? No, this is no. I'm not going to oh, sing. Bleak. No, 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 no. We're done with that. Oblique. Oh, Oblique. Oh, I don't understand why there are so many oblique injuries. Like, what? what is the deal with that? What's the deal with oblique injuries? Um, I don't know what the deal is besides, you know, Steve Pierce is known to take a violent swing, and you could see that causing some issue. 
Um, when he came out of the game, everyone thought, oh, it was because, you know, he jumped. He landed he, on his butt. Yeah, well, he broke his coccyx, and not like anyone would have an issue with that on this podcast. But, um, but again, it's an abdominal strain. It's day-to-day. He had an MRI. The Orioles didn't seem like it was too serious. But, again, it is the Orioles, so he's probably done for the season. I think I think it's not quite that dire, but hopefully, uh, hopefully I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see when those two players get back because replacement players from the 40-man roster are not a good sign for J.J. Hardy and Steve Pierce. So um, let's hope they get back sooner rather than later. And with that, Jake, I think it's time we uh, wander through the past week on the Twitter. So let's go to the twat this week on the Twitter. All right, first, we have to address this. First of all, Twitter, shame on you. Shame on you, Twitter. What exactly happened there? I mean, Twitter's known to have terrible instances all the time, but what is the exact instance we're talking about? Scott, here? you and I run an Orioles podcast. Yeah. And that podcast has a Twitter account that follows sports, uh, players, media, very laser-like focus on the Baltimore Orioles. Mm. We we follow very few people, and we do so because we want to make sure that we're getting all the information on the O's, all the opinion on the O's that we can as much as humanly possible. And despite that, we had a lot of, we'll call it uh, pop culture current events that leaked in. And when I say leaked, I mean leaked. You mean on someone's back? Why in the land was Twitter all abuzz with the unfortunate events of leaked photos? Well, shame on you, Twitter. I do not need this in my feed. Shame on you. Jake, you should know better than anyone else that we are a baseball blog. So when pictures come out of Justin Verlander, we have to be all over it. <laughs> and let me tell you something. I was all over it. I'm sure you were. Many a time. Were the images Verlander-esque? Uh, the images were definitely Verlander-esque. Uh, let me just say this much. Uh, I may have gotten my FIP out, okay? Jeez. Oh, Before this goes any dark... Any- my whiff percentage was uh, sh- extremely high over the past 24 hours. Before we go any further down that dark path, again, shame on you, Twitter. I want to go to another... Greatest sh- day on the internet. I want to go to another shame on you, Twitter moment. Look, there's this uh, account. It's called O's uh, FB commenta- uh, Commenter. O's Facebook Commenter. This is a Twitter account that is dedicated to tweeting out dumb posts that people make about the Orioles or on Oriole fan groups. Let me ask you, Scott, is this the best thing or the worst thing that's happened to Orioles-related Twitter? Do they post anything regarding the pictures that were released over the past 24 hours? No, I've moved on. Okay, then it's the worst thing. It's awful. Look, I... I I have no other issue with the individual that's posting it because, again, it's a mockery. But the comments that I see on it just piss me off. I, I liken it to, you know, you mistrust any form of public transportation where they give access to the brakes to the general public. You see that on trains. You know, there's that little emergency pull thing. Not a good idea. The The masses are frightening. It's a truly frightening place. It actually is somewhat concerning to me. Because as you know, our motto is a lack of insight and baseless opinion. But these individuals that post on Facebook may be trying to steal our title. That is very, very possible. But we're the official source. Absolutely. Please come here first. Yes. All right. Let's move on to actual twat-related content. I want to talk about the best thing that did happen to Twitter this week, and that was the Ask Crush uh, Mass and Orioles takeover that took place. But the real takeover was Darren O'Day asking uh, Chris Davis questions. And the best one was, Chris, is your tail the source of your power? Vestigial, by the way. Oh, was it vestigial? Yeah. Chris, is your vestigial tail the source of your power? The best part about that is that I'm sure that the instances of that word being Googled throughout the Baltimore area just skyrocketed compared to basically any other day of the year. Right there with Jennifer Lawrence. Stop it. <laughs> All right. Next on twat, uh, something that's near and dear to our heart. Speaking of getting excited on the internet, um, Charlie Hobbs has amazing facial hair, at least for the next 24 hours. Um, Charlie Hobbs, which you can follow at Charlie Hobbs 11. He had a beard that was not to be messed it with. It was a mountain man beard. Yeah, it was a mountain man, whiskey man beard. So he said, those concerned about my beard, does this make up for it? 
And um, he may have posted a picture of a handlebar mustache. First, let me just say, nice wax job, Charlie. Nice. Are we still talking about Justin Verlander here? No. Okay. Uh, I was I was so impressed with this mustache, and I'm I'm going to be nothing but judgmental and deeply disappointed if Charlie shaves that thing off. That has to stick around for the rest of the playoffs. Uh, a lip like that needs a sweater. He needs a friend. Yeah. All right. Next article. Uh, next tweet I want to go through is from our good friend Carney Cabeza. You can follow him at Luchit at or- Orioles. Uh, he uh, posted a link to an article about Orioles superfans. It says, great article about the Orioles superfans in the city paper tomorrow. I would recommend everyone go and read it. It's got you know quotes in there from everyone from Carney to Romeo to a bunch of other Orioles superfans that you know deserve mention. Um, I think O Sunglass Guy was in that article too. So everyone go and read the city paper article about Orioles superfans. It'll give you some civic pride. Yeah, definitely a good article. And it's also nice to see uh, there were a couple of quotes from J.J. Hardy in that article about the team recognizing those super fans, the guys that are there day in and day out. It was just a, it was a nice article. I agree. All right, next thing on the twat, here's a tweet, and there were a couple, but here's one from uh, Rockabaco who tweets at Mass and Rock. He says, hashtag Orioles passed 2 million mark in attendance with today's 33,156, 13 regular season games left scott the orioles have surpassed two million and if all goes well if they sell out every game from here on out then get to 2.5 million is that a good news story for the first place team in the al east or is it a bad news story well they had 2.35 million last year so they're gonna be pretty much exactly they were last year so no big mover or shakeout. Well, I think one of your predictions this season, too, was that they were going to pass $3 million. Is that correct? Uh, I forget what the exact number was, but I, I, I said that there would be a huge increase. Yeah, in so I think it's going to be less than a 10% increase at best. I'm really disappointed about that. I really am. I'm not surprised at all. I mean, why would you be surprised? Because this team is winning, and this team has been winning from the get-go. Yeah. It's not like in 2012 when the Orioles happened to get good at the end and had that huge you know, September uh, run. And in 2013, you know, the expectation was that the Orioles would do well, but they fell apart in September. This team has been good for three years now, and they've been good since since the get-go for 2012, or 2014. I don't understand why people aren't buying tickets. And again, remember from 2012, too, they gave away a lot of tickets on the cheap as well to get people in there in September. So um, what can I say besides... The Orioles are going to have to do a better job on going out there and going to get more people into the stadium and willing to convince them to come to the stadium. It's a difficult issue, too. You know, the only thing I'll come back and point out is TV ratings are at a sky high right now for Masson. So the Orioles are seeing some benefit in that regard of seeing TV revenues increase. Um, You would hope that, you know, Masson revenues would kick up and that the Orioles would, you know, see some of that back in return as well, as opposed to just attendance. Well, I mean, you, you wouldn't know that they're making money from Masson given the way that they advertise on the network or given the fact that original uh, programming is just a fraction of what they run on Masson 1 and Masson 2. But that's a, an argument for another day. Right. Okay, moving right along. Uh, here's a tweet that I thought that was interesting. It was um, tweeted out by the Baltimore Orioles, at Orioles. We are just nine wins away from our 5,000th franchise win including the postseason. Stay tuned for more wins on the way. All right. I have a question for you, Scott. Yeah. Now, I did some math. Eek. I did some math. 5,000 wins at about uh, at 60 uh, years. That's about 83 wins a season. If you take a, a, you know average of how many wins they've made throughout their, their time here in Baltimore, I think that this 5,000 is only from their time in Baltimore. Here's a question. Why are the Orioles so careful to avoid the St. Louis Browns as part of their franchise history? Um, because who remembers the St. Louis Browns? It's it's just awkward to me because they, they work so hard. When, when is there a discussion ever of the St. Louis Browns? Never. So why would we include them in our numbers? Because they're part of the franchise history. Yeah, just because it's on baseball reference. Uh, no, it has nothing to do with, with baseball reference. Yeah, major league it kind of does. Major League sports teams move. That's what happens. Great. That doesn't mean we need to include their records. 
We I, leave the records with the town. Look, I wish that was the case, but that's clearly not how it happened. Just uh, just ask that franchise that's out there in Indianapolis. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is we don't have to take the records for another team. We can leave it with their town. And if that team were to come back in existence, they can keep the records. All right. Do, do you think that that has been a conscious decision that the team has made since 1984? Or has it been the, the standard? 1954? No, 1984 when the Colts left. Oh, 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 I think it's been a conscious decision. The whole time? Whole time. All right. It's a little weird to me, but I'll allow it. It's not like you had St. Louis Browns players coming around with Brooks Robinson around and talking to Brooks Robinson. Okay, fair enough. Um, Jake, you kind of got into a hissy fit earlier today, too. Um, by the way, this is your post says, By the way, Mauer Triple is the reason you don't put Delman Young in left field, especially on a day that the rosters expand. And uh, you got a little bit of flack for that from an individual called Matt Walker, and you can follow him at, at Matt the walker 47 and he posts you would have caught huh jake uh i didn't realize that precluding you tweeting something on the internet precludes you to have to play baseball well i mean i look i i don't want to get into a an argument with somebody who's not here to defend himself that's what this whole podcast is about so i I was beating up on on delman young for being a subpar uh, defender and he thought that my criticism was a little too far and and he said you know oh you would have caught it clearly but i'm not really sure how that's relevant again i i'm gonna come back to the point with this play too today which was even if he didn't catch it which again it was it would have been a difficult play for anybody to catch the ball it was still a horrible throw and there's no way he's in he should have gone to third base yeah th- that's the thing is that if it, you're not going to get to it you're going to take a good route to play it off the wall mm-hmm. like a major league outfielder <laughs> and that's my issue with delman young and to a, to a lesser extent nelson cruz these guys are not major league outfielders they're there because they can hit it would be awfully nice if we had a left fielder who could hit but we don't you know what would also be nice if we had a major league pitcher that who were paying fifty million dollars, who was actually some benefit to us coming into the stretch run, so Jake, I want to go talk to somebody that may have some insight on him and may have you know played some baseball back in the day in college. So let's go talk to him about that fifty million dollar player. Wait, are there going to be numbers involved here? Oh, baby! Let me go refresh my drink of the week. Jake, uh, Habaldo Menes has been the topic of many podcast segments throughout this year. And uh, the greater focus earlier this year was, uh, you know, how bad he was in April. And then he kind of turned it around in May, but not really so much. But he was part of a, a starting rotation that actually was one of the worst in Major League Baseball to start the season. And then June rolled around. The Orioles have actually been one of the better starting rotations in terms of ERA. Um, there's been a constant debate about um, ERA versus FIP. And we've had many individuals come on from fan graphs to discuss that issue. Um, but then Jimenez left for an extended period of time and didn't come back into August. And when he came back in August, he pitched two games and then was designated to the bullpen. And since he's been in the bullpen, he put together a four-inning long relief role, giving up no runs. But he threw 75 pitches in four innings. And then on Sunday, he went a third of an inning, giving up three walks and a double on 34 pitches. So, you know, this left me with the aspect of, is there any hope for Jimenez in the future? And fortunately, someone beat me to the punch because we have Dan Weigel, who writes for Beyond the Box Score, um, and he wrote an article called Abato Jimenez, Ineffectively Wild. And we invited him on so he could uh, give us some hope, hopefully, about uh, the $50 million answer that the Orioles fans are looking for and how to improve Abato Jimenez. So, Dan, thanks for coming on. And thanks for writing your article about Abato Jimenez and how, um, well, how crappy he's been so far this season. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, although uh, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to offer a lot of hope with him. Uh, <laughs> it's been pretty bleak for him so far this year. But we'll, we'll Dan, get Dan string him out. along a little bit, okay? we we got to at least give him some kind of hope. I mean, we'll, we'll get to the end and just bury everybody, but it, at, right now, there's still hope. There is. There is. <laughs> um, although he's basically regressed <laughs> in, uh, in just about every category this year. Yes. Um, starting with the with the velocity of his fastball. 
Yeah, that was actually um, one. Coming. That was actually a really interesting point that you brought up, which was the velocity is extremely down over the past few years. But the one thing that was interesting to me was, you know, the Orioles could look at his velocity last year, and yet his velocity is down compared to 2013. But the Orioles had seen this reduction in velocity since 2010. Um, over the past few years, so you know he he fit into that role and that and that trend of okay, it's not like his velocity is always going to start increasing again. He's going to be that ninety-one to ninety-two mile per hour fastball pitcher that is going to have to start learning how to throw a breaking ball. Um, and it looked like he may have started to do that last year in two thousand thirteen, and that's why he saw um, some success in the second half of two thousand thirteen. But it had it hasn't been the case at all in two thousand fourteen. <laughs> Yeah, his his breaking balls have actually been uh, one of the main reasons for the demise, along with the drop in velocity in fastball velocity. Um, even last season, the end of last year, when he was very good in the second half of the Indians, um, I'm just looking out in September, his fastball velocity was over 93, mm, okay. and now in August about 91. Like that's a significant drop for a starting pitcher. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we've talked about that before with Chris Tillman. Um, you know, kind of whenever he drops two or three miles per hour in terms of fastball velocity, always seems to get hit a lot easier. So that's something that Orioles fans have come to watch and say, you know, his velocity is not quite there. It might be a bad Chris Tillman kind of start. Yeah, Tillman's a little bit, a little bit different. Um, he's, uh, he's found a way to succeed without the fastball velocity. Um, I was there the other day, and you know, he was able to mix it up. He hits his spots well, um, which is something that Jimenez obviously doesn't do. Um, and then Tillman obviously has a big uh, overhand breaking ball that's been very effective for him this year. Uh, whereas Jimenez's breaking pitches have just been decimated this year, um, especially recently. His slider is just getting crushed. Um, his curveball is all but abandoned, um, and that's just getting hit around as well. Yeah, let's go through those numbers really quickly from your article. You broke out the slugging percentages for the slider and the curveball, and uh, Jimenez's slider this year has a 481 slugging percentage, and uh, this curveball that Jimenez is throwing right now has a 818. That's 8 one eight slugging percentage for his curveball. Um, that's pretty bad. Yeah, that's not a typo. He <laughs> hasn't used his curveball as much as his as his slider, and with good reason. But when he's thrown it, it's been absolutely crushed. I mean, that's a Barry Bonds figure right there. You just don't see an eight eighteen slugging percentage ever. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's only thrown his he's only thrown his curveball for three percent of the time. But uh, you know, it's still, you shouldn't be throwing any pitch that is giving an eight hundred uh, point uh, slugging percentage. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a little dangerous, too, because um, obviously the sequencing plays a big role, um, and, and, and it's a, you know, the pitches play off of each other. But in, in at-bats, ending with uh, his curveball, um, it's a 455 average and an 818 slug, and that's about a, over a 300 isolated power. I mean, there's no easy way to say the no, – no way to sugarcoat that, but it's been an awful pitch for him this year, and it hasn't always been that way. Uh, I cited pitch values. Um, and what those are, they're, they're linear weights um, based on each event that happens in a game, um, and specifically within the context of that bat. Um, so uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if the listeners are familiar with the uh, run expectancy chart, uh, where for each base out state, there's a different run expectancy. So, for example, uh, Baseball Prospectus has this data available. And with uh, no runners on and no outs, you're supposed, uh, the run expectancy for an average team would be 0.48 runs that inning. Um, and then, you know, say the leadoff guy gets on, uh, the run expectancy increases to 0.85 uh, runs for that inning, um, and then so forth. And then you can measure the differences and come up with all kinds of fancy stats. Um, in Jimenez's case, um, I was able to look at his pitch value charts, which break this down even further. Um, and so instead of each result, it breaks it down into each pitch. Um, and so it's able to isolate the pitch. Um, and with Jimenez... Uh, his numbers have been pretty bad, especially with the uh, slider and the curveball. Uh, his fastball has actually been okay this year. It's been um, zero weighted fastball. The, the stat is uh, fastball runs above above or below average, and we can do it per 100 pitches or just total for the season. Um, so to be to be more specific, then during an AB, uh, if Mena starts the batter off with the first pitch fastball um, for a strike then the uh, hitter's batting average will go down um, and so forth, and that will in turn lower the run expectancy. And so we're able, and then say he throws a curveball, that's hit for a double, and then that's going to raise the run expectancy for that inning. Um, and so we total all those up. They're small increments within the context of the bat, but over a, a season they'll, they'll add up. Um, 
And so his fastball has actually been average, league average this year. And uh, But his slider has been um, 0.95 runs below average per 100 pitches, which is a huge mark. Um, and even bigger is the curveball, which is negative 4.79 runs above below average. Um, obviously, that has some small sample size issues, and if you threw it more, it probably wouldn't be hit quite as hard. Um, but that's that's still miserable. And then the split finger, um, which is typically his best off-speed pitch, has been uh, worth half a run below average per uh, 100 pitches. So um, with the sequencing, he's sequencing one average pitch and three well below average pitches uh, with a cutter, a few cutters mixed in earlier in the year. Uh, but I mean, the sequencing is is almost uh, you know not even relevant with uh, the quality of his arsenal and how much it's diminished. To give some context on that, the slider's been a good pitch for him throughout his career. In 2009, it was 2.3 runs above average per 100 pitches, and then even last year with Cleveland, it was uh, 0.95 runs above average per 100 pitches. But it's it's taken a complete step back this year. Um, so even if he is able to sequence it well, make the fastball play off of the the slider and so forth, um, which goes into something called effective velocity, where if he's able to spot well and work a count, um, his pitches can play up, um, but they're, they're just not there. Um, it doesn't make much of a difference if he's if his slider is just not as effective as it used to be. He's still going to get hit hard. Well, Dan, let me ask you, you know, you have a, a chart in your article, which is pretty helpful for the idiot like me, which tracks the uh, which tracks the velocity for each of the pitches that he, he throws. And he's got quite an arsenal. He's got a, a number of pitches that he throws. But you can basically track, you know, you, you mentioned that, that pitches that were more effective in 2009. While, while you're describing that, if you're looking at the chart that, that, again, you provided in your article, you can see the difference in the velocity of the slider, the velocity of the four-seam fastball, the velocity of the sinker just coming down. Is it basically just that his his hard stuff is no longer special, and his his soft stuff, especially the curveball, was never special? That's really the difference between uh, an Ubaldo Jimenez that the Orioles thought they were paying for and the guy they ended up getting. Yeah, that's a theory that I alluded to in the article. Was that when Jimenez was able to throw 97, it didn't matter as much how good his breaking pitches were because the batter had to gear up for 97. And so, for example, Aroldis Chapman, you know, for a batter facing Aroldis Chapman, Chapman doesn't have to have a terrific slider in order for it to be playable. The difference in velocity will be good, and because he has to gear up for the fastball, other pitches will play off of it well. Um, and in Jimenez's case, uh, if, even if his breaking pitches were the same, and his breaking pitches actually haven't diminished in velocity nearly as much as his fastball has. Um, but... Uh, I think that you'll you'll also see that not only has his velocity uh, dropped for the hard stuff, but he's no longer throwing his most effective pitch and the most effective pitch in baseball, which is strike one. And you're that's, you're getting to hard. you're getting to a point where the the hitters are requiring Abaldo Jimenez to throw strikes, and he gets to the point where either he can't do it. Or when he does, he does it in such a fashion where he's throwing as a, a, you know, an idiot like me calls it a not special pitch. You know, he's having to throw over a get me over curveball or a, a breaking pitch that that hangs or something of that nature when he has to throw a strike and gets cornered. And, and I think that that has a lot to do with again the guy that used to be able to to get by on velocity versus where he is now as a pitcher. Yeah, absolutely. You look at him and his first pitch strike percentage over his first few years in the in the league was actually fairly consistently mediocre at around 55%. Um, that, that's below average. Um, but he, again, he had enough stuff that he could throw, you know, 97 by you when, whenever he wanted to, essentially. Um, but now this year, and last year it was up to 58%, and now it's down around 55.5% again. Um, the batters are just exhibiting more patience with him. They, they have the book on him. They know he, he doesn't throw strikes well. He doesn't repeat his delivery. Um, and so they're just swinging at his pitches less in the zone. They're chasing fewer pitches, um, and they're making more contact as well, which is the bigger the bigger sign. That that my theory is that because he doesn't have that 97 mile an hour fastball, batters can see thing. You know, they can see the ball better. They can identify the different pitches. And you know, if his breaking pitches weren't special in the first place, well, now they can sit on him and know that you know he's not really going to blow a fastball by me. So I can. I'll pay more attention to those breaking pitches, which are, you know, rather 
mediocre to poor at this point. Let me come back to the first pitch uh, strikes that we were talking about. Um, we've seen an increase by Jimenez to you go to the slider as well on first pitches as well, as opposed to relying on the splitter or the four seam fastball. And, and we talked about this in the article. You guys actually talked about this in the article about how he has had seen success with both the four seam fastball and the splitter. But again, his inability to use that, or I guess his decision not to use it on the first pitch is interesting. Is there any reason why he shouldn't switch back to going more to so that four seam or that splitter on the first pitch as opposed to relying so heavily on the slider for first pitch? Um, it all just comes down to sequencing and which pitches he can command. Um, with how poor his slider's been this year, um, I wouldn't suggest him using it any using it at any count, let alone <laughs> first pitch. <laughs> well played, sir. <laughs> but, yeah, um, his, his, his splitter's been the best of his off-speed pitches. Um, and so, so if the, I mean, if his slider is going to be this poor, uh, really the only time he should use it is as a show me pitch, just to give the batter another thing to think about, um, that he can mix it in every once in a while to keep them off of the flat, the the four seam or the sinker and the splitter. Uh, but it shouldn't be something prominent in the arsenal, um, especially not. And that, and that usually isn't a first pitch type of thing. The only thing, the only way he should use it in a first pitch is just to kind of, if he if he knows a guy's sitting fastball, he could throw one in there and try to steal a strike, but that's a dangerous game uh, yeah. with a below-average breaking pitch. Yeah, just, yes. to, just to point out here, too, for the first pitch against right-handed hitters, he's throwing his slider 27% of the time, which is actually more than he's throwing his four-seamer right now against right-handers. Against left-handers, it's reduced. It's down 12%. But it's interesting against right-handed hitters, he's throwing that slider so much on uh, on first pitch first pitches. I just think that's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Slider's almost often a, a chase pitch that you want to throw out of the zone. And, yeah, exactly. You know, and for him to go to that that frequently, that's, he obviously thinks of it more as more than just a show-me pitch. It's almost like he's pitching backwards too much. Yeah. Um, and what that is that a pitcher will, or pitchers typically pitch off of their fastball, and then um, when they're ahead, they can go to their all-speed pitches and, and uh, get swinging strikes and make the batter hit the pitcher's pitch um, that's more difficult to hit as opposed to the first pitch fastball. Um, and by pitching backwards, Jimenez is throwing his breaking pitches early in the count and then going to the fastball later in the count. But if he can't command the breaking pitches, he's going to fall behind, and then he's going to have to come back with the fastball over the plate, and then that's going to get hit as well. Well, well I think, um, So he I may think want he... to think this sequence in there and, and his strategy with those pitches. I think he's pitching backwards in such a fashion that he's throwing out of the strike zone more than he's throwing in it, um, which is dangerous, awful, and and drink-inducing for Baltimore Orioles fans. We, we've, we've, we've beat this to death. He's, he's just not successful. But let's let's move this forward to— So we're switching from backwards pitching to forwards pitching? Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> what, you know, we, we've seen Baldo Jimenez drop from the rotation into the bullpen, which is clearly the right move for a team that's trying to win a pennant, uh, trying to, to move deep into the playoffs. Um, he, he's stuck in the, in the bullpen for now. Is Ubaldo Jimenez's future as a starter done, or can he be an effective starter moving forward if he if he changes his game in some fashion? For me, it comes comes down to two things. Um, one is his command. Uh, you can't walk more than five batters in an inning and be successful as a starting pitcher um, in this league, even if you're going to strike out eight batters per nine. Point is uh, the lack of a quality breaking pitch. Um, obviously, the fastball, both fastball varieties are playable, um, as is the splitter. Uh, they're not great right now, but they're they're decent enough um, that he can get by in the middle of a rotation. Uh, but he doesn't have the slider anymore. Uh, he had it in Cleveland. Uh, he had it um, in Colorado. Um, but he, he just doesn't have it right now. So it's entirely possible that he can get it back. Uh, I'm not sure what caused him to lose it and why it's been so poor this year. Um, there is hope for it because he's had it before. Um, or another route he could take is uh, developing a different pitch, uh, such as a cutter. Uh, perhaps he's, he's dangled with a cutter a little bit. Um, the Orioles have an organizational philosophy against cutters. Uh, very few of their pitchers throw them. Uh, but that's another option for Jimenez um, if he wants to develop a third pitch that he'll need to stay in the rotation long term. Uh, he, he's not going to be able to survive in the rotation with uh, the quality of breaking pitches that he's shown so far right um you know going through the slider numbers if you look at his slider numbers in terms of ground ball and line drive percentages his ground ball percentage for a slider in 2013 was 38.96 in 2014 it's dropped all the way down to 29.69 in 
and his line drive percentage for sliders, 15.58 for his slider in 2013, all the way up to 39.06 in 2014. I, I guess my question is, you know, what can cause a slider to increase that dramatically in terms of line drive? Because we all know that when that line drive increases that dramatically, you're putting a lot more hits into play. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the slider is a feel pitch. Um, it just comes down to whether or not he's getting the proper break on it. Um, as a college pitcher myself, I mean, I've had days like that. You know, sometimes you, you come out there, you have a really good slider, or even even by a season, you know, you, you develop a good pitch, and then you have a long off season. You go to an orga- new organization, and you know, you lose that muscle memory. Um, and so that, that's likely what what has happened with Jimenez is that he just doesn't have the same feel of it as before. Maybe. Uh, the Orioles change the grip of it, and it's not as successful. Or maybe it's because his fastball is two miles an hour slower, and so they don't have to gear up for 93, and they can sit on the 91, and then they can see the slider more uh, more clearly. We were talking about the grip there and how it might have changed in the muscle memory, but does the slider also have anything to do um, in terms of that change um, based off of release point or anything like that? Or is Because I look at the release point, and it, everything looks very similar year to year. So I was just curious, could it just be a biomechanical situation? Because we can look at Jimenez and look at his, you know, approach to the plate, and it's just absolutely awful and inconsistent all the time. Is it that, or is it just, you know, like you said, grip? I wouldn't say that the lack of a quality slider necessarily is due to uh, something mechanical. Uh, mechanics would affect, would seemingly affect all pitches equally across the board. Uh, but while while they all have, while he's regressed in basically every category this year. Um, the slider and the curveball have been hit the hardest, uh, which leads me to to believe that it's more of a feel thing with his hand and how he's releasing the pitch as opposed to uh, trouble with repeatability of his delivery. Not saying that he doesn't have trouble repeating his delivery. His delivery is uh, not not fun to watch, to put it put it lightly. It's, it's just there's just a lot of moving parts going on. It seems very difficult to repeat, which um, definitely plays into his, his high walk numbers. But as far as quality of the slider having to do with the delivery i'm not sure that that could be the main culprit all right so let me come back to the discussion about maybe going to another pitch entirely and we talked about he flirted briefly with the cutter in 2013 but pretty much has gotten away from that completely in 2014 is there a possibility that he might look at it and say i no longer want to go with the slider i'm going to try to start learning how to throw a cutter And, and could he see benefits of going to a cutter and just eliminating the slider and curve altogether yeah, absolutely. Um, although that assumes that he can, he's capable of throwing an effective cutter, right. uh, which he did last year, uh, briefly in Cleveland. Um, although learning a new pitch is difficult, I would say it's probably more likely that he could find an effective slider again, um, considering it was good as recent as last year, and that was one of his primary pitches. Um, but yes, it is, it is entirely possible that he could find one. Although again, the Orioles, as an organization, um, aren't aren't really fans of the cutter. Uh, they don't encourage their pitchers to throw it. Um, and so I don't know if the cutter specifically would be the one for him in this situation right now. If it was in another organization, I would say that it would be a lot more like cutter. Yeah, they seem to be against the cutter for the guys they're trying to develop. Uh, they're not really on the hook for the development of Abaldo Jimenez. Is it possible that they would be more willing to uh, to give up on that with a guy that, that, again, they're just trying to get something out of at this point? Absolutely. That's a very good differentiation. Um, the deal with Bundy was his cutter was so good. Um, baseball Prospectus had it as an as an 80 grade pitch on the 20 to 80 scale. Ooh, wow. as, as soon as he was um, in pro ball, um, and so so it makes sense for the Orioles to take that away to force him to to work on his secondary pitches. Yeah. Obviously, that's not the case with Jimenez. They need him to be good now and next year, and then the next two years. Um, so yes, absolutely. If he can prove that he has a good one, I would. I'm sure that the uh, management would open up to that and allow him to throw that possibly even encourage it um, because his slider is just simply not getting it done right now. He needs some kind of breaking pitch, um, something that's going to run away effectively from a right-handed hitter. You know, as an O's fan, I, I have no confidence in him to uh, devise another uh, good pitch to save him from what he's been. Um, so you think that success for him in the pen is cutting the off-speed pitches that haven't been successful for him and focusing on on what he's got that is a semblance of a good pitch? Right, and the and the thing with the pen is, uh, you don't need three or four pitches to be successful as a reliever. He could succeed uh, just fine as a short reliever with his four seam, his sinker, and his splitter, yep. um, or even abandoning one of the uh, one of the fastball varieties. Um, he he won't be able to turn over a lineup three or four times using just 
a fastball and a splitter. Uh, but in the pen, he'll be able to do that. Well, Scott was hoping that you'd have good news for him, and I feel like you may have disappointed him on that front. No, no, this was good news. This means that it wasn't a total dumpster fire. It was just, you know, a small trash can fire. <laughs> Is that good news or not? Uh, we, we're, very, we're very friendly with small trash can fires in Baltimore after 14 years of losing, so we have no issues with that. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> All right. Well, Dan, thanks so much for coming on today. You know, you gave me a brief glimpse of hope. And, uh, you know, it's interesting looking at Jimenez's stats. You know, yes, it's been bad, but, you know, he has had good season in the past. You know, it's like you said, if he can fix his breaking balls, um, there is hope out there. So I recommend that everyone go and follow Dan and go take a look at his uh, work on Beyond the Box Score. It's the article is going to be called Abaldo Jimenez Ineffectively Wild. And you can follow Dan at Dan Wiggles 38. Dan, is there anything else that you uh, have going on lately? Uh, that, that's about it right now. Um, right at Beyond the Box Score and uh, Minor League Ball, actually. I'll have uh, just some scouting the other day that'll be up there, but that's not related to the Orioles. That's okay. I wrote we about st- Hunter Harvey earlier this year. Those fans might want to check that out. Mm-hmm. Nothing's really changed with him. So well, that, but- that's also on Minor League Ball. Well, Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. We look forward to talking to you in the future. All right. Thanks so much for having me, guys. So, Scotty, I have an important question for you. Are the Orioles going to let us down? No. No, not at all. Are they Are they definites for the playoffs at this point? Yes. I mean, honestly, Jake, we could talk about it, and you know, we've talked about it for the past few weeks, but honestly, I'm sick and tired of the topic. Like we was talking about, Baltimore Orioles fans just get ready for the ride. Um, Andrew Stetka actually wrote a great blog about this on Mass and Sports. I recommend that everyone go and read that, but... Uh, Jake, we could harp about this for the next four weeks, but we're not going to do that. That's kind of why we touched on the Jimenez speech, because I think that's an interesting piece for the Orioles in the future and not just to harp about, yes, this is a good team. It's a great team, which everybody else in the podcast atmosphere is going to do and say, oh, yeah, they're doing great. But let's talk about other things that are going on in Birdland in general. All right. So you're saying they're going to make it and it's time to print their playoff tickets absolutely i mean we've already covered that in the past few weeks so let's not cover it again all right so so here we are we're, we're rooting for a team that's going to make the playoffs and he's playing really good baseball we're pretty excited about it and we really have very few complaints about them so we're in an awkward position here <laughs> the the orioles are going to make the playoffs uh getting tickets is really the the issue is it not i i think that's a big issue going going into this you know i've had a lot of people come up to me at least in september and be like oh are you gonna play off tickets and i'm like yeah i've got an invoice for them and came out to a pretty hefty sum and they're like oh is there any chance that you might have any extras and i'm like no i'm not gonna have any extras if you want extras you should go and buy season tickets well let's talk about that uh back in 2012 the orioles had to uh relearn what it was like to print playoff tickets and 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 stuffing those those. envelopes was difficult and so between 2012 and now 2014 we we've seen a, a few differences the first of which that we should cover is that season ticket holders were able to buy season uh buy playoff tickets in 2012 not only for the seats they owned but also they could buy at that point uh, twice the number of tickets than they actually had season tickets to. So if you had two seats, you could buy four playoff tickets for every game that you were able to buy. Yeah. That is no longer the case. No, that's no longer the case. As of last year, you could actually only buy an additional two tickets. Now, we should we should point out that Scott and I both have 13 game plans. It's possible that there are different policies for the 81 and 29 game plan holders but I think that we're getting to the point where the 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 number of season ticket holders that we have as a fan base is starting to reach the point where the Orioles need to make slightly less generous terms when it comes to playoff tickets. 
Um, you know, I think we can come back and take a look at FanFest, for example. And the 2012 FanFest that we went to at the beginning of that season was barely attended. It was basically a, a, a drab of maybe no more than six or 7,000 people. And then we came out to the 2012 season in 2013, and it exploded. And there was a ton of season ticket holders there. And it was the same way this year as well. So there's definitely more season ticket holders out there, specifically in that 13-game plan. Well, I mean, and let's let's throw the curtain back. When 2012 got ridiculous, my wife, who's awesome, uh, bought me a present of season tickets for the next year, which gave us the option to buy post-game tickets. We were able to buy uh, post-game tickets for, for the ALDS, and it was one of the best things I've ever been a part of. They're still allowing that to happen. So you have a, a much higher number of people that have bought season tickets uh, and you have people for 2014 that they're taking 2015 deposits from and guaranteeing those people to be able to buy playoff tickets. Yes, they're guaranteeing people the opportunity to buy playoff tickets. What do you mean about that? That means that there's a good possibility that those people that put money down could easily be shut out of playoff tickets. I'm not so sure about that. I, I, I wonder if they're not holding those tickets aside so that they can be sure to at least throw those people a bone, you know, whether it be the ALDS or or beyond. How do you see that happening? Because, okay, we already know that there's been a situation where invoices have gone out to season ticket holders for this year, correct? And there's going to be a pre-sale for season ticket holders. And I'm assuming that it was pre-season, pre-sale for season ticket holders is also going to include individuals that bought tickets for next year as well. So they're going to be fighting with the rest of the season ticket holders to try to get tickets. There's a good possibility that um, if they don't get onto that site right at 10 o'clock and put in their confirmation code that they could get shut out of tickets. I can't imagine the Orioles It was, like I said, last year when we purchased tickets, it was a feverish pace on that website. And tickets went out, I think, within the first hour. So look, the Orioles are, are bad at a lot of things. I don't think that the Orioles would sell people on buying 2015 season tickets and getting playoff tickets and then not having those people be able to get them. That that just seems like too stupid even for them. Jake, uh, can we come back to last year by chance and come back to we were season ticket holders last year. And can we discuss the invoicing situation and what the uh, fallout from that was for being a 13 game plan? Do you remember what it was? Do you remember the rant that you had? I, I may have ranted. Okay. You do you remember what ALDS game and ALCS games and World Series games they gave you? No. Okay, they gave you ALDS game number three, which means that the Orioles would have had to win the division, which we all knew was pretty much fruitless. And then they gave you ALCS game number three, and I think they gave you World Series game number one. I'm like, well, great. They gave us World Series game number one, but they gave us two other tickets that are probably not going to be able to be used. And we were supposed to fork together $1,500 for that to happen? Yeah, uh, it wasn't so good. So we didn't actually use our invoice last year because the package was absolutely horrible. And we relied on the pre-sale for the season ticket holders in order to get playoff tickets. Yep, and that's how we got our tickets for ALDS. No, no, I'm talking about two. last year. Yeah, yeah. No. Oh, oh, I Last see. year. I'm not talking about 2012. I'm talking about 2013. So the Orioles do are still trying to get their feet wet of how they are going with invoicing and how they're offering tickets. Now this year, I have no gripes with Orioles PR. We were part of the bronze package, so we were still on the podium, but we still got the lower end of the spectrum. But we got ALDS game number two, ALCS game number two, and World Series game number two, which I think is a very fair trade for season ticket holders in a 13-game plan. Absolutely, and especially if there's going to be that opportunity to buy tickets afterward uh, for additional games. Yet you can't argue with that at all. Being that we are season ticket holders, we've had a couple of experiences recently with the Orioles. Can, can we go ahead and talk about the uh, the situation that we had with the Orioles this uh, this month? Throw the curtain back. I, I actually have to say I'm really impressed with the Orioles. Um, we we you mentioned that we have a, a season ticket package. It's actually in Section Seven, uh, which are seats that we like uh, very much. Um, and we got our, our postseason package, and they put us in section 55, row 11, which is under the overhang on the f- third base side. That is correct. Now, those seats are great if all you want to see are the ground balls that take place during the game. 
those seats are not so good if the ball is going to be elevated. Or if you want to see the scoreboard. Right. We keep saying there are no bad seats at Camden Yards. You get more than 10 rows back in the overhangs, and you might as well just watch the televisions that they hang there. And if you're going to watch TV, why would you do it at the ballpark? Yeah. I mean, it's great for if there's rain or something like that. But again, the overhang seats are an issue. So, um, Jake, um, there may have been a hissy fit. It was not a hissy fit. It's a very mature and calm discussion that took place. But we called the Orioles and we explained the situation. We said, look, you know, we, we're in a section where we know there's no obstruction to our view. We got moved to a section where there's an obstruction to our view. Is there anything you can do for us? And the Orioles were very clear and they said, no, there's nothing that can be done for you. Good day, sir. Good day. You lose. But. Uh, talk to them a little bit, and they they managed to work something out for us that we were a little happier with. We basically said, uh, "Yeah, we're uh, Baltimore's best <laughs> Orioles podcast." So we we did not do that. It did it did not come up in conversation. But I do want to give the Orioles props because uh, we worked very hard with them to work that situation out, and they did find us something that was uh, was suitable for everybody involved. The Orioles were happy. We were we were happy, and uh, I think it's a credit to the Orioles for. Now that the demand for tickets is high, especially the demand for uh, playoff tickets is high, that they still value uh, their season ticket holders. They value their customers that have been there all along. It was a good sign for an organization that falls down so often, that lets us down so often from a PR perspective, to do the right thing for its customers. Yeah. September is always a big month, and we always touch on Orioles PR in September because it's a great time to get the city energized. And I think the city is... Um, in full-blown Orioles mode right now. We were talking about it earlier, and I'm ready for football season. But the common fan is really big on the Orioles right now, more so than I've ever seen it. Did you just call me common? No, no, no. I'm not talking about you because, again, you sit down with podcasts. But I'm talking about the common individual that says, you know, Chris Davis is a bum or, you know, the typical Facebook commentator. So, you know, the the, the city is ready to burst with, um, you know, orange passion, orange pride. And yes, this is a football town, but it, like we've said, it's also a baseball town. And it'd be a great opportunity for the Orioles to really cash in um, with some great PR um, and take you know a note from the Ravens of how they go out there and embrace the community and you know do rallies like the Orioles have done and the Ravens have done in the past, but also go out there and maybe, Jake, here's an idea. What happens if you go out and give playoff tickets away to, like the Ravens did of spraying out bird logos in the city and say if you can find this and instagram it you can win a playoff ticket i think that's a pretty cool idea because you come across the city and you're like oh there's an oriole bird i'm gonna take a picture of it and then if you come across the right oriole bird you get playoff tickets a golden ticket dude a golden ticket we, we promised we wouldn't sing it was a thing run charlie run uh, you know, sure, maybe maybe they can do stuff like that. We talked a little bit earlier about attendance and whether that's a problem, whether we can, you know, encourage people to come out for this first place team that's probably going to, you know, more than likely going to make the playoffs. If you can't get people excited for that, what can you get them excited for? Um, you know, we think the Orioles should be uh, in a stronger PR uh, move, but do they really need to have PR uh, presence about their playoff tickets? I, I would say no. I, I don't think it's about so much the playoff tickets, but again, I think it's important that they get the city behind the Orioles for a playoff because, again, getting that kind of camaraderie and building in that you know fan base is going to be important, not so much for September and October, but more so for coming out next year and trying to raise that attendance up. This is not just about one month. It's about building a fan base. All right. So you talk about building things, wins and losses. Scott, there's been some wins that have been building up as well as some losses that have been building up this season. I think we need to address this because this is becoming very important. Got me beat up and down, inside out and across. Oh, yeah. But in 
Scott, it's the right music. Did did something happen this week? Yeah, you won. Congratulations. What? Jake, last week, yours category was on-base percentage. And Jake, you selected Steve Pierce, who had a 429 on-base percentage. And I took Nick Marcakis, who had a 235 on-base percentage. And yeah, injury was a factor for Steve Pierce. But honestly, Jake, I got beat up good. Nick Marcakis did not come back with a vengeance. And he had an absolutely piss-poor week. Uh, you know, I... I feel awkward about this because you were so gracious last week in, in taking victory, but but not really not really accepting it because it was cheap. I, I feel that to pick a player that has a smaller sample size because he, he leaves injured throughout the week is kind of cheating. Uh, well, you still won, and pretty handily. You could have picked anybody else in the lineup, and you would have won. So, Jake, I picked the worst person, so that gives you the automatic win. All right. I, because I'm in the position where I have to, I'm going to take it. What does that run the score to at this point? Brings the score to 11-7-3. to 7 to 3. So, Jake, if you were to win out for the rest of the season, we would come to a statistical tie. And if anything has taught us this season, it's no doubt going to end up in a statistical tie. I, I certainly do. Uh, expect that to be the case all right if i'm gonna win it has to be through dumb stats rather than the intelligent ones. Oh, great here comes the hit by pitch no 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 <laughs> and I, we're not even gonna need that many uh tiebreakers we won't need seven tiebreakers for this scott for the next seven days from a starting pitching perspective okay which starter is going to have the most innings pitched most innings pitched oh one second so let's see. Who's pitching tomorrow is the question. Because, I mean, you're going to want someone that pitches twice in one week, correct? That is a very good possibility. Yeah. So let's go through and take a look at the rotation. Because, again, if we're going to pick this this stupid thing, can we do it like innings pitch per start, like averaged out? No. Okay, so you just want to go with the person that's going to pitch twice. All right, fine. We'll do innings pitch per start. Okay. Jerk. Go for a rate. Um. All right, I'm actually going to switch it up a little bit. I'm going to go with Miguel Gonzalez. That's very good. That was actually going to be my pick. Uh, I'm going to have to go with Wei Yin Chen. Okay, which again is a situation where he's only going to probably pitch once this week. So I'm laying it on the line on one start. Okay, so we're still going to go with innings pitch per start. So we're going with a rate stat as opposed to a count stat. That's right. Okay. So, Jake, I went with uh, Miguel Gonzalez. You went with Chen. Who will own it? And, Jake, with that, I think it's time we go through who did own it this week. Let's go through the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's right, Jake. It's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, Jake, did you want to go first this week, or did you want me to go first? Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and take it. Okay. Uh, for the good uh, this week for me, I'm going to go with Caleb Joseph. Caleb Joseph just continues to be such a pleasant surprise. We expected almost nothing from him. He was uh, brought up as a guy who could hit. Turns out he was a fine defender. And then afterwards, the bat really seems to have come along. Uh, this week he was eight for twenty-one. He's uh, batting a crisp three eighty-one. He's also drove in three runs uh, this week, and uh, he's again from a position where you're not expecting to get value. He has provided just that. Jake, my good for the week is going to go to Chris Davis. Um, three home runs this week, four fifty-six woba, one ninety-six weighted runs created plus, but still only had a two twelve average. The thing is, he's hitting for power. He's hitting a lot of doubles, and he's hitting a lot of homers. So it's encouraging. But again, that 212 average is a little scary. So I'm going to give him a good for this week and just keep an eye on him. Um, maybe he's turning it around. He can't get any worse. All right. Uh, I'm going to go ahead with my bad for the week. And though this does uh, hurt me, I'm going to go with Kevin Gosman for my bad this week. In the last week, he's had two starts. He's only pitched uh, 11.1 innings, and the results have not been so good. Now, of course, pitching wins and losses is a crap stat, but he does have two losses uh, on his two starts this week. He's just he's just not getting it done, and we, we talked all about the fact that he needed to step up. 
at this end of the season. I, again, you know, some of the peripherals, not horrible. Um, he, he's got, uh, 11 strikeouts in that time against only two walks, but, uh, you know, today's game, not incredibly effective. His last start, not incredibly effective. It leads you to wonder, is he really going to be included in that playoff, uh, pitching rotation? Is he going to be along for the ride in the bullpen? Is he going to set this one out because he just is hitting a rough patch at the end of the season? Okay. Um, my bad for the week is going to go to the individual I picked for fantasy boss last week, which was Nick Marquez. Two fifty two Woba. You're just bitter. He lost you. Yeah, two fifty two Woba and two thirty five on base percentage is not a good sign for a leadoff hitter. Let's hope Nicky Cakes can turn it around in the next few weeks and uh, get that on base percentage back up again. All right, uh, for me, I'm going to go to Ugly, and I think this might be the first time I've gone to this particular well for Ugly in the 2014 season. I'm going to go with Adam Jones. Adam Jones is the guy that we're talking about being the most important member of this organization, the most valuable Oriole, and he showed it in the field this week. Yeah. He absolutely showed it in the field. But the guy kind of disappeared this week at the plate. And, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through and we're going to talk about it. The, the guy struck out seven times in 24 at bats. And yes, he drove in three runs, and that's really exciting. But I just said earlier, that Caleb Joseph in the seven and eight slot drove in three runs. And if you're going to compare that to the heart of your order guy, the guy that's there to fuel the offense, not really sure that Adam Jones is really holding up his end of the stick. Of course, nobody can be perfect all season long, and I get that. But a 208 average when the games count the most, not what I want to see from Adam Jones. So I'm, I'm being a harsh grader this week. Adam Jones, stay hungry. Get your stuff together. We need you leading the charge, not dragging behind in this last 30-some games. Right. Jake, my ugly for this week, and you're going to love this, is going to go to God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch. There's no reason to be singing God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch. There's absolutely no reason for it. I'm sorry. You're not a patriotic American? I'm not a patriotic American. Uh, I just don't really feel for it. I understand that it was a big thing after 9-11. But uh, again, I don't think it's necessary for Major League Baseball during the seventh inning stretch to be singing God Bless America. I'd rather just sing, take me out to the ball game, do Thank God I'm a Country Boy, and then finish it with the Beatles. There's nothing better at a baseball game than the Beatles. I don't want to hear God Bless America. I want to hear the Beatles. So you're telling me that you're upset with uh, God Bless America because it does not allow the folks at Oriole Park at Camden Yards to end the seventh inning stretch with Twist and Shout? That is correct. Okay. As a Beatles guy, I can only applaud this, but I think you're crazy. Uh, No, I'm not crazy at all. God Bless America is fine at like Yankee Stadium, but not at Baltimore. Let them have that. Let us have twist and shout you know i I can't believe i'm arguing against the beatles you wound me sir i i think that the uh orioles actually do a tremendous job of doing the patriotic thing great that's great during the other innings i want the beatles during the seventh inning i don't want to have some quasi religious patriotic song during the seventh inning i've got my religious my, my my patriotic song at the beginning of the game when we can all scream oh and then I want Beatles and more Beatles and more Beatles. Uh, you obviously can't be talked down from this. I, I really can't. So, Jake, God bless America. You're ugly. It's time to retire it. More Beatles, more British music. Make it happen. Uh, I, I have nowhere to go with that. <laughs> that sounds like a mission complete. In that case, Scott, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to blow the save if that works for you. That sounds appropriate. So go ahead. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to somebody that didn't really fit into our good and bad and ugly segment because he was a little bit of each, all mixed in together, and that is Jimmy Paredes, who uh, this week was both hero and goat, and, and it was funny because uh, in Sunday's game uh, he was a little bit of everything. In Monday's game, not so much. Uh, in Monday's game, he made two key errors at third base. And the worst part about that was, the worst part was, is he came up as the last out for the game. How 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 beautiful and poetic is baseball at times? 
Baseball is a truly poetic and uh, humbling game. So, it is a cruel mistress. Yes, it is. So to the goat and the hero of games this weekend, Jimmy Paredes, who, who clearly you know is not in the in the future plans in the organization, but hopefully can uh, provide a lift here at the end as we make that pennant chase. Here's hoping for. Uh, Here's hoping for the hero rather than the goat performance moving forward. And speaking of which, Baltimoreans, if you're listening to this, you're on notice. You need to get him a nickname right now. Um, I have labeled him the Grand Marshal after a Twitter exchange that I had. Um, last name sounds like Parade, and um, he's the Grand Marshal of that Parade. So that's what I'm going with. So figure something out better. So, Jake, with that. Yeah, look, I got nothing left. At this point, I should simply uh, bid Baltimore and beyond a fond adieu adieu. Good night. Baltimore, drink responsibly. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.